Welcome to episode 36 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. It's about the food and it's not about the food. It's about the weight and it's not really about the weight because that goalpost, the eating disorder will keep shifting it and shifting it and shifting it because there is nothing that will be good enough. Hi, I'm Rowan and today we're speaking with Dr. Ranjani Utpala, the clinical director of the Butterfly Foundation. Dr. Upala is a clinical psychologist who has specialized in working with eating disorders over the course of her career, working both in the public and private sectors. The Butterfly Foundation is the national charity for all Australians impacted by eating disorders and body image issues, and for the families and friends and communities of those who support them. Butterfly operates a national helpline, which includes support over the phone via email or online, and it reaches over 20,000 people a year. You'll also hear Dr. Upala referring to the Wanda Nerida facility, which is now officially open. It's Australia's only specialist residential eating disorder recovery centre with a butterfly model of care. You can find out more about it in the show notes. Today's podcast is brought to you by talklink.com.au. It's a modern and approachable mental health directory, helping Australians to find and connect with the right mental health practitioners. All of the practitioners, so psychologists, counsellors and psychotherapists, are available to see clients straight away, so there's no waiting list. They're independent, licensed and insured, and can see clients in person or online. The great thing about TalkLink is that you can see a short video of the therapist to get to know them a little, check out their training and experience, as well as their pricing in a transparent way to decide if this is someone that you would like to connect with. Okay, let's dive in. You know, when we're talking about the eating disorders system of care in Australia, so we've got a range of treatment options. And on one end of the spectrum of that is inpatient care, all the way across to community-based treatment and community-based support. So inpatient care historically in Australia and up until this point has been hospital-based within um, a medical ward or some hospitals might have a psychiatric ward that might have a few eating disorder inpatient beds. And the focus when you have a inpatient um, stay or an admission is more about either psychiatric or medical stabilisation as a result of consequences, physical or uh, mental health related consequences of having an eating disorder. But what's really exciting is we're in this phase of um, expanding upon the existing system of care in Australia in that we're launching the first residential treatment setting, um, residential treatment care facility for people with eating disorders. And so Wanda Nerida is operated by Butterfly Residential Care and it is going to be licensed as a private hospital providing residential treatment for people with eating disorders in Australia and we're the first of our kind and we're due to launch later this month. So it's a really exciting phase that we're in um, at Wanda Nerida. Um, I, I guess just to touch on what Butterfly is, what is it, how does it work, what's its goal? Yeah, so Butterfly Foundation is a not-for-profit organisation and our vision is really to, our vision is that all people in Australia can live free of eating disorders and negative body image concerns. And so we do this in multiple ways, um, including both sort of an advocacy arm that we have as well as the provision of clinical and treatment support services itself. So in terms of advocacy, we engage in advocacy work to listen to, to amplify and um, 
really kind of more advocate, I suppose, for the voices of those with a lived experience of an eating disorder in Australia. And also we do a lot of work to increase public awareness and understanding of eating disorders. And we work to highlight the existing gaps within that sort of system of care that we have in the country. And so the, the um, residential treatment facility that I was talking about, for example, Wanda Narada, is one of those um, gaps that was um, identified in, um, you know, through sort of sector collaboration and identification within the sector of something that was missing within our um, system of care. And so we were able to work with um, other sector leaders um, in order to be able to raise funds from the federal government to run residential treatment centres. So that's sort of one of the bits that, you know, that we do. We also have um, really fantastic kind of prevention team that work to prevent eating disorders and body image issues from developing. So the prevention team works within schools, works with GPs, works with boarding organisations and sort of, you know, early responders or first responders or early identifiers, people who are well suited to be able to pick up those sort of early warning signs, if you will, of either disordered eating or eating disorders themselves, but also doing work around sort of mental health literacy, eating disorder literacy and body image, building sort of, you know, improved body image um, resiliency for young people so that's sort of the work a lot of our prevention team does and the clinical services at butterfly foundation which is what i'm responsible for and um, basically our clinical team works within the sort of system of care to deliver both evidence informed as well as evidence gathering treatment and support options for people with an eating disorder okay so i definitely want to dive into that in particular but you talked about early intervention and the role that that has. And I imagine like so many mental illnesses, early intervention is always the better route than trying to do late intervention. Can you maybe talk a little bit about what some of the early intervention tools are, what sort of things someone may look for if they have a young child or they know someone who's young or perhaps just in a vulnerable point? What sort of things are you looking at that's making you uh, maybe reach out for a bit more support or maybe read up a little bit more? Yeah, no, that's a great point, Ron, because what we know is that, um, you know, for any mental illness and eating disorders are no different for that matter, that the chance of recovery does increase the earlier that an eating disorder is detected. So therefore, it's really important um, for people in the community, but also, you know, and that includes sort of teachers and GPs um, and, you know, sports coaches and people like that, as well as sort of general public to have an awareness of some of those early warning signs of an eating disorder. There's no such sort of, there's no checklist as such, if you will, because it is sort of a complex and multifaceted um, way in which eating disorders can present. But there are sort of physical, emotional and kind of behavioural changes that a person can look out for. It's terrible being a psychologist who can't say behavioural very well, but there it is. <laughs> I've always had that problem. Um, so in terms of, um, you know, some of those kind of emotional or behaviours that you can look out for, there's sort of the um, behaviours or attitudes that indicate weight loss, dieting, or um, where you notice that control of food are starting to become sort of primary concerns for the person in your life. Um, it might be that there's a preoccupation with weight, um, with food, might be a preoccupation with the way that someone looks more so than amplified potentially the way it was 
or even sort of a hiding of your body, like maybe, you know, feeling sort of wearing really large clothing or something like that in an effort to kind of hide um, body and so forth. It might also begin with things like a refusal to eat certain foods or becoming kind of increasingly restrictive you know, to whole food categories. And this is a really tricky one because I feel that in the current sort of world that we live in, we do have so many fad diets around clean eating and healthy eating. And, you know, I don't do carbohydrates and I don't do, I've said no to sugar. So it makes it really difficult because socioculturally, some of this is normative at the moment. And yet at the same time, when these sorts of, behaviors or changes we know can be precursors to the development of eating disorders which then are um, we know that they are very very serious and complex mental health illnesses as well that's a really tricky one and I sort of encourage anyone who's starting to notice that sort of restriction or changes in eating and kind of the moral attribution or or of good or bad to foods you know these are good foods and I'm going to eat more of these or this is bad and I'm not going to eat this food um maybe just sort of starting to have a gentle conversation with the person and understand you know hey where's this coming from and just a little bit concerned about you that might be sort of a good way to go other sort of behaviors might be sort of increasing discomfort around eating around others so avoiding social situations that might require eating or arriving at social events where eating would be expected but having said that they've already eaten or something like that and again we're not just talking about a one-off behavior we're talking about patterns of behaviors within um, an individual as well and you know things like skipping meals um, taking smaller portions the emotional side of it is also kind of I don't know if I already talked about the withdrawal kind of social withdrawal but also emotional withdrawal not sort of being able to uh, you know meet people for social engagements but also changes in mood so you know we we know that with eating disorders there can be a big change in mood um, you know high incidences depression as well can be present so changes in mood changes in that sort of social interaction might also be things that we're looking out for from a behavioural and emotional perspective. And then also thinking about sort of physical changes, which may be related again to weight and shape, especially like if somebody is, you know, if we're noticing that there's been quite a significant change in weight or, you know, people might have difficulty concentrating, difficulty focusing, um, really noticing that, you know, someone's not eating or drinking in public might have sleep concerns and so forth so these are the types of things I mean there's a lot of physical health complications but when we're talking about early warning signs that people can look out for um, typically that sort of tends to be it um, you know changes in weight especially whether it's up or down and it's important to recognize that it can be an increase in weight or a decrease in weight Mm. Um, that would both be concerning as well. I guess this this conversation really strikes home for me in many ways, um, but I have someone in my in my very close circle that suffered from a, a very severe eating disorder, and so much of what you're saying resonates with with what I observed. And the other thing that I observed in this particular case was a lot of shame and guilt around food. Mm. Whenever this person allowed themselves to eat, they were just tormented and tortured with the fact that they have now 
somehow transgressed and now they are going to send their bodies on a trajectory that's that's not where they want it to be. Um, can you maybe talk about the shame and guilt and whether that was just this instance or whether that is a theme as well? No, I think you're absolutely um, right that, you know, there's a lot of shame and guilt associated with then eating. So eating disorders we know have a lot of disturbances in terms of in, in, in the way in which that people relate to food and their own bodies and weight and shape. And so when you're talking about the shame and guilt there, the eating disorder, so, you know, different, different models kind of differentiate almost when we're talking about an eating disorder, that there are times when there's an eating disorder self. And this is something that Carolyn Costin talks about in her work, but it's also something that comes across in cognitive behavior therapy and so forth. This idea that there is an eating disorder part of you and there's a healthy part of you and there is a conflict within um, about what it is that the eating disorder will allow you to do or not allow you to do. And so really this idea that as the eating disorder strengthens, the healthy part of you is really overtaken by this eating disorder that can be very um, difficult to combat um, in terms of the mental energy that is required to be able to attend to it as well and so that shame and guilt because people with eating disorders often have an increased sense of um, lack of self-worth or feeling low feelings of self-esteem and so forth the eating disorder can impact all of that the way that you view yourself and think of yourself as being unworthy and so decisions around food or exercise and the way that you see yourself are really quite significantly impacted by these feelings of shame and guilt that people often carry. It's a very difficult disorder to understand looking in from the outside. Um, and I, I'd love you to speak about what you see and what you hear from the families as well, because I know the foundation works with families. You know, on one side, you see someone going through something like that, and all you want them to do is just go eat a burger. Just, you know, mm -hmm. why don't you just eat? Like, I don't get it. Can you maybe talk about what families go through that have someone that has an eating disorder and what sorts of things the foundation does to support families and, and maybe just outside of the foundation as well, what sort of resources families and friends and relatives could turn to to help strengthen them in that, that marathon because really often they are. Yeah, absolutely. I think that families and carers really do take on quite a bit of anxiety and it's uh, you know we know that eating disorders create living with an eating disorder in your home or with a loved one creates an enormous amount of stress anxiety and tension within the family within the relationship as well and so there is a lot of pressure that is experienced by a person um, when their loved one has an eating disorder so the eating disorder is not just affecting the individual but of course it has that ripple effect on everyone around you as well including on your ability potentially to work or engage in education and so forth so there's really many different domains that are affected speaking about the family I think that there's we know more and more about the absolute necessity to have family as part of treatment and support and what I mean by that is historically in eating disorders there's been this sort of very pejorative view of families and almost the blame of a type of family in which eating disorders might thrive what we know about sort of eating disorders in terms of what we know from decades of research is that it's not families that cause eating disorders 
but families are absolutely one of the most crucial and necessary resources in helping a person to recover from an eating disorder. And so when we're talking about eating disorders, because they do thrive in isolation, what the eating disorder does is it tends to kind of create this split between the person and anyone that they can potentially seek help from. And so families who might be instrumental in helping the person recover are often pitched or pitted as an unhelpful uh, resource or that they're not going to help and they don't understand. And this is not true because we know that a lot of families are very well-intentioned and wanting to support, though they may not always land in the way that the help is needed. And what I mean by that is an offer to try and help may not be seen as a help as something helpful and so that comment that you were talking about you know maybe you know just eat something or you know why can't you just eat something I think that those sorts of comments can be really can be experienced as really invalidating for the person with an eating disorder because if it were that easy if it were just a matter of eating then the person with the eating disorder would be able to manage it and they would be able to do it um, societally, when we hear things like, you know, why won't this person just eat? It really trivializes, I think, the complexity involved in the development and maintenance of eating disorders. So like these comments can be quite reflective, I think, of one of the most common and dangerous misconceptions about eating disorders, because we know that people still believe that eating disorders are lifestyle choices or that they are diets that have gone really bad or that they've gone too far. And so even though a person with an eating disorder can have severe disturbances in their behavior around eating, the treatment is not as simple as just eating. Um, and it's sort of, as I think you mentioned it earlier, it is really complex. It is really complex and it's a hard one that people struggle to understand because it's intuitive that while food is the medicine for the body and food is the medicine that the body needs, the treatment needs to include a much more holistic biopsychosocial approach where we look at all of the different contributing factors and we target each of those areas to help enable the person to kind of replace their maladaptive eating disorder coping mechanisms with more adaptive and sustainable coping mechanisms. Okay, so I, I definitely do want to dive into those treatments, but I, f I first just would love to get your thoughts on body dysmorphia, which of course is one of the key parts leading and, and leading into and, and sustaining an eating disorder. Um, can you maybe talk us through what it's like inside someone's mind and seeing the world through their eyes? that is experiencing severe body dysmorphia? What is it and how does it work? And what are they seeing and what are they hearing and how are they perceiving themselves and others? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I do want to mention is that that sort of disturbance in the way that one's body is perceived is a um, symptom or a criteria um, from a diagnostic perspective for eating disorders. It is different, though, to body dysmorphia as it occurs in a body dysmorphic disorder, which is not an eating disorder, and those are often sort of confused at times. And so it's really important to um, understand that people with eating disorders tend to have disturbances um, in their behaviours, thoughts and attitudes relating to food, eating, 
body weight and shape, which is different to body dysmorphia that happens within sort of body dysmorphic disorder, which is really sort of more about typically it's a perceived flaw in someone's physical appearance, which is not something that is necessarily present in someone with an eating disorder, unless of course they have a comorbid, um, you know, comorbid presentation of both ED as well as BDD as well. And so I think what we talk about then about that sort of disturbance in um, the way the body is perceived is sometimes also in relation to body image, or it can also be kind of severe disturbances in the way that one's body weight or shape is experienced. And that can be quite different. And it's really important to note that everyone's experience of an eating disorder is unique and that there's no kind of one way in which an eating disorder would manifest for an individual and also that they affect different bodies as well. So people's perception and then their sort of relationship with their body will vary depending on what it is that they're experiencing at that point in time. I'd love to get your thoughts on on just helping um, listeners get an insight into the state of mind of someone who would go to the extents that you would see in eating disorders uh, and, and some of that self-talk and some of the, I guess, the, the way in which they perceive their bodies and how that perhaps stands away from what their bodies are really doing. Um, in, in my particular, you know, and this is only my experience, I heard this person talk a lot about the fact that they were fat. They perceive themselves to be fat. They explain in detail how they had rolls on their arms and belly. And I was looking at them and it wasn't there. It just wasn't there. But I could see that they really believed it from the bottom of their soul. So, and I know this is just one instance, but um, it is that sort of that sort of jarring difference between what really is there and what that person perceives consistent across eating disorders or was that a comorbid example? And I guess, could you dive into that? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I think that, you know, that can be quite a common presentation uh, when you're talking about someone with eating disorders and especially kind of people with restrictive eating disorders um, like anorexia nervosa where there's a lot of weight loss and so forth that comes from the eating disorder itself. And, you know, you ask about what would it be like or to get a glimpse into, you know, the state of mind, I suppose, for someone. And I really think that the way that you've encapsulated it pretty much captures it. There is a constant sort of battle that goes on in the mind um, where the eating disorder doesn't allow almost um, the person to see or perceive reality for the way it is. So it may well be that someone on the outside and so you as an objective viewer are looking at the person going you're actually quite significantly underweight. And, you know, with anorexia nervosa, especially we see this happen quite a bit where the seriousness of the weight loss or the seriousness of the often kind of starvation and emaciation that follows is not something that the person themselves has insight into at that point in time because the eating disorder is so kind of fixated on this notion of, not being good enough and the body not being kind of where it needs to be. And really a lot of it is, um, you know, when we talk to people who are in that space, it really in that headspace, 
um, it really speaks to how difficult it is to battle that eating disorder voice in that moment, which is why what we were talking about earlier, the just eat, is not as simple as that. There's no way that a person would be able to do that. It takes an immense amount of strength and courage on a daily basis to be able to battle that eating disorder when your perception in a way of yourself and to some extent reality of your own sort of body and experience is altered to such a um, extent to, to such an extensive point yeah yeah I, I saw someone who basically had a broken feedback loop they wanted their body to look in a certain way and they were um, they were getting a different result they look in the mirror and see something that that they didn't want and then the behavior adjustment was okay well i'll restrict my diet so that's exactly what you were talking about to achieve the body you know that that i'm after but then they look in the mirror and they'd say well that's still not the body i want so i'll restrict my diet further and so they had this feedback loop you know what what normally works for for i guess most healthy people you look in the mirror you go yeah i should probably go for a run more often i should probably lay off you know whatever it is if i want to look in a certain way for for that person it just didn't work. And so what you're saying really resonates with, I guess, that that one example that, that I had in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that really highlights to me one of the critical points, which is it's about the food and it's not about the food. It's about the weight and it's not really about the weight because that goalpost, the eating disorder will keep shifting it and shifting it and shifting it because there is nothing that will be good enough. And so, you know, what when when we're able to kind of rectify it, as you were saying, someone without an eating disorder might be able to self-correct and kind of go, okay, well, this isn't getting me to where I need it to be, or um, you know, self-correct in some way. Someone with an eating disorder is not able to do that because the the almost the eating disorder voice is so strong and it's so driven and compulsive. And really one of the things that, you know, we talked earlier about sort of Um, guilt and shame kind of being almost sort of you know some you know some really very critical sort of characteristics in a way of eating disorders Um, they're not they're not criteria as such from a diagnostic perspective but certainly it's something that we see in almost everyone that comes that presents with an eating disorder and similarly it's also this control or the loss of control really that often manifests with people with eating disorders as well And so that loss of control can be um, in relation to something else that's happening in life. And so you turn your attention potentially to hear something that I can control, but really at the end of the day, who ends up being in the driver's seat of that driven weight loss, for example, what we were talking about is not the individual, it's the eating disorder. So in some ways, what might start off as this is a way of control or keeping control is something that the person loses full control over very quickly often because it's by then the eating disorder is in that driver's seat as well that's really interesting are people who experience a lack of control growing up more likely to develop an eating disorder it's a it's a tough one to answer i think at the end of the day um we do know that that sort of perfectionism or rigidity and inflexibility in thinking and um, behavior and so forth can be one of the personality traits, if you will, of people with eating disorders. But I don't know that, you know, everyone who grows up in environments where they don't have control will necessarily develop an eating disorder. The causality isn't quite there, but in terms of correlation as well, 
you know, I think that the development of eating disorders, what we know from the research are very sort of complex and there's known evidence-based kind of known risk factors that, you know, might predispose someone to development of eating disorders. And so certainly, you know, experiences of trauma, experiences of childhood abuse and so forth are things that might sort of predispose someone to the development of an eating disorder but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's how that that everyone who has um, um, you know who has suffered that will necessarily develop an eating disorder either and what are some of the other risk factors you will have sort of those biological factors as well as sort of psychological like the personality traits that we were talking about and then all the social risk factors as well. So biological risk factors, I think we've talked a little bit about heritability as well as having like a close relative, for example, mm. um, with an eating disorder. So we know that from kind of studies of families that, you know, having a first degree relative, like a parent or a sibling, that's a first degree relative with an eating disorder, increases the risk of someone developing an eating disorder themselves. You know, we also kind of talked about some of the psychological factors like the perfectionism, the rigidity that can occur. There's a history of kind of anxiety or an inability to um, regulate your emotion. I don't know if I mentioned body image dissatisfaction. So if you have a history of body image dissatisfaction, which is often linked to weight stigma or weight related teasing which can happen um, earlier in life and that's one of the social risk factors I suppose but when you have weight related teasing or weight stigma then that can also impact the development of your body image and so higher levels of body image dissatisfaction can predispose someone to the development of an eating disorder as well and you know I guess that also brings us to social aspect of things which is really, um, I guess, in our culture at the moment, especially that kind of idealization of a particular appearance, whether it might be, you know, I think that there are socially defined ideal bodies. And the more we have this notion of what an ideal body can look like, both for, uh, for people of all genders. So the more you buy into the um, whatever the current appearance ideal is. And I say the current appearance ideal because the way that we view bodies and what is viewed as ideal has obviously shifted over the decades. But irrespective of how it shifts, it almost seems to me like whatever the current ideal is, is unattainable to someone who also wants to have sort of, you know, a life and, you know, be engaged in employment and so forth. Because at the moment there is such a emphasis on, being healthy and fit but we're not all fitness idols with six hours of training and um you know people to kind of curate our um diet and so forth um in the pursuit of that ideal body that whatever it might be um what we know from the research is that people who have higher sort of levels of buy-in or you know buy into the kind of normative or whatever is currently sort of the um, appearance idealization they're more likely to be predisposed because that leads to then that sort of body dissatisfaction that we had talked about as well and there's a lot of momentum socially in sticking to certain types of bodies and you know social media i think is a huge engine behind 
creating a whole bunch of standards that are pretty tough to live up to. And even the people posting a lot of those images are using a lot of filters and a lot of body sculpting tools digitally uh, that really makes that standard very, very tough. So um, I imagine I imagine social media has made that harder and I imagine it's probably going to continue getting harder. Do you have any thoughts on social media and what it's meant for eating disorders? Yeah, um, great point. I do think that social media, while it can be, um, has immense benefits at various points in time that for the kind of creation of this unhelpful body idealization kind of environment, social media is rife with problems. Um, you know, we do understand that um, young people who use particular sites, especially, and also it really depends on what type of information that they're accessing. But, you know, when they're, um, when the information that they are processing is much more about um, a certain type of body idealization or food and weight and shape kind of related, that it does have quite a significant impact on potentially the development of an eating disorder. Again, not to kind of establish, try to establish a causality, but certainly we do see that high levels of correlation. Yeah. In fact, I was reading on the Butterfly Foundation website about um, orthorexia, um, and that sort of plays into what we're talking about now. Could you maybe introduce that? What is orthorexia and, and why are so many people talking about it and why are they even thinking about including it in the, the DSM? Yeah. Um, so orthorexia nervosa, as you just um, rightly mentioned, is not currently a separate diagnosable criteria of eating disorder in, in and of itself. However, what we do see more and more from the kind of clean eating movement and so forth is this sort of when, with orthorexia, it is about healthy eating lifestyles and reducing um, certain types of food and so forth um, with a view of being clean eating or healthy eating kind of uh, vision, I suppose, impacts on someone's ability to function um, in their life. You know, again, not to say that everyone who it's really important not to pathologize everyone. And at the same time, it's really important also to be able to identify when there is problems. And so what we see more and more from a certainly from my own clinical experience is, you know, individuals who are presenting with high levels of distress because what, again, started as potentially a move towards trying to be healthier and trying to, you know, limit the amount of sugar that you might eat or, you know, whatever the types of food categories that someone is trying to cut out gets to the point where it becomes really difficult for them to function socially or at work because of that. And what I mean by that is, you know, then people are not able to attend activities or events, you know, not being able to celebrate in birthday parties or dinners with friends because of the fear almost of the food and the contaminants. So while on one hand, we know that you need to kind of have a moderate and, uh, and an approach that sort of has moderation at its heart, when we're talking about sort of an orthorexic almost presentation, it's where that rule around the food and the rigidity that, that sets in around that can never be broken. And so that starts to have quite a significant impact on the person's social relationships, on their ability to, again, just participate in life and also often work or employment because then they become quite distracted and distressed by the thought of food and, um, you know, what happens if you can't get the type of food that you're looking for and so forth yeah um I, I found some numbers on the incidence of eating disorders on your website and um according to some of the papers that you quote 2.5 to 4.5 percent of women mm -hmm. get eating disorders uh, and one to three percent of men 
get eating disorder. So those are the prevalence. And then you also talk about survival rates. And and, um, and there's, a, there's a, a number there that 20% of severe cases of eating disorders without treatment will result in death. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Whereas it's 2 to 3% of severe eating disorders with treatment that will end up in death. So obviously, firstly, there's, it's, that number just blows me away. Um, 20% is incredibly high. And then the other jarring thing about that is you go down, well, you go from 20% down to 2 to 3%, which is a huge improvement with therapy and treatment. So could you maybe just share some of your thoughts on those numbers? And then I want to ask your your experience and thoughts on the treatments and, and dive into that and what some of those uh, options are in your toolbox. Eating disorders, they have the highest rate of mortality amongst all psychiatric illnesses at this point in time. And that's due to both the physical health complications that can arise from having an eating disorder, both sort of acute but also long-term physical health complications as well as the psychiatric comorbidity, which is, you know, completion rates of suicide and self-harm and so forth as well. And so when we're talking about the importance of treatment, I think you've just sort of highlighted that, you know, treatment can make such a huge difference. And, you know, why is it necessarily that we don't have that treatment is a really important question to be asking as well. You know, in Australia, we have a system of care that, has many gaps at the moment. And I think that that really indicates also the importance of us being able to develop new services that offer the evidence-based treatments that are available for the treatment of eating disorders. And so in relation to treatments that work, we know that there are evidence-based treatments that can be offered in a community setting for children and adolescents with eating disorders. The most well-researched and current gold standard is called family-based therapy or a family therapy model that involves actually bringing the family in as a critical resource in the refeeding of their child. And so what we know from the evidence is that with the right treatment, both in terms of being true to the model and also the appropriate dosage that is required, the outcomes actually indicate really good and positive prognosis. One of the challenges to that is because eating disorders are very complex and they are often seen as sort of specialist services, it's hard to be able to find appropriate treatment because we certainly have a workforce capacity issue and we also have then you know, accessibility from a cost perspective as well which they're not the only two factors but they're certainly two very big factors in terms of being able to access treatment for people so that's sort of you know talking a little bit about the child and adolescence and the known sort of treatment modalities within that space once we start to move into adulthood the evidence has sort of historically been quite limited for treatment of anorexia nervosa but there is a growing body of evidence for therapies like specialist supportive clinical management and this has been shown to be quite effective as an outpatient treatment for anorexia nervosa as as well and in terms of binge eating disorder and bulimia nervosa cognitive behavior therapy um, known as CBT uh, most people are familiar with that approach has also been shown to be quite effective and have good outcomes as well now there's the types of treatment modalities but it's also really important to consider where treatment happens and what is the most appropriate setting in which treatment needs to happen as well. 
this is where that sort of system of care that we were talking about is a really critical and important one to be aware of. We know that hospitals save lives and there is absolutely a need to have beds um, within public hospitals that, you know, whereby wards are able to manage people with eating disorders in an appropriate and humane, and I use the word humane very deliberately in a humane way, because that's not often what happens a lot of the time because of that sort of lack of understanding of how to treat eating disorders, I suppose. So hospitals are absolutely critical um, in being able to save lives and they do save lives on a daily basis. But what we then have is that people have medical or psychiatric stabilisation in a hospital environment and they're often discharged to go home with very little support. And that's not because the hospital isn't making a good discharge plan. It's because there's a dearth of services in the community. So if I've had a really significant medical or psychiatric event that's led me to be going into hospital when I come out of hospital is when I'm going to most likely need an intense level of support. But often people are discharged back into the community, perhaps into the care of their general practitioner or a psychologist or a dietitian that they might see on a weekly or fortnightly basis if that. And so what that does is I've been stabilised and my life has been saved in the hospital and I've come outside of hospital and I don't have enough support. So the eating disorder kind of just goes completely unravels and I'm not able to manage the eating disorder and I end up back here again. And so this sort of revolving door is sort of set up a lot of the time when we're talking about eating disorders treatment. And that system of care is a really important one for us to think through and what is needed. And the National Eating Disorders Collaboration, which is the NEDC, um, earlier this year put out a very interesting paper that talked about what an ideal system of care would look like. And that ideal system of care really is about delivering appropriate treatment to people within appropriate settings based on where they're at and what's clinically indicated. And so someone who's been in hospital for stabilisation, we know that going home is not the best way to be able to support and manage that person. So we need to have a step down from hospital, which might be sort of a residential treatment centre like Wanda Narada that we were talking about um, that's going to be opening on the Sunshine Coast shortly. And so you've got the residential treatment and then you've still got to step down from that. The residential treatment is typically a place where people go to live for a period of time. Residential admissions tend to be longer than inpatient hospital admissions. So somewhere between six to eight weeks tends to be kind of that duration of stay. But also it's important to have longer admissions if that's what's appropriate at that point in time. So when you come out of 24-7 care from a residential setting, again, you go from that to business as usual, community care, it may not be sufficient to sustain the changes. And so what we really need is sort of more within that middle, which is things like day programs, outpatient treatment programs, meal support programs, things like that, in order to be able to then sort of take people from one level of care to the next, both kind of stepping down, but also stepping up. Mm. It sounds like the hospital deals with really acute cases when your eating disorders literally become life-threatening and it sounds like it's a refeeding program effectively uh, and there's only acute mental health support offered and so the gap would be to remove someone from all the usual triggers that they would have in their usual home put them in a safe space under supervision without having the clinical scrutiny there that's the thing that makes it so inhumane and maybe some 
I'm certain, I'm certain other things as well that, that you touched on. Um, but a, a effectively halfway house in that, in that sense, a step between clinical hospital and home. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, you're right. I think that sort of step between acute clinical admission that is, you know, around sort of medical stabilization and home is really required, but the residential is also about delivering therapy. And so in a residential program, the participants or the patients who are on a residential treatment, you know, in a residential treatment center will be engaging in higher doses of evidence-based therapy and what is appropriate. So they'll be learning skills about how to manage eating disordered behaviors, thoughts, and, uh, you know, behaviors and thoughts, as well as the feelings. And so it's a very sort of, it's still an intensive level of treatment and therapy. It's just that it's delivered in a different way, that it's not a medical admission. And really the focus of that admission is both your kind of nutritional as well as psychological rehabilitation. There's still a lot of hands-on work that happens with the individual and also actually challenging them on a daily basis in order to be able to move towards recovery. And at the same time doing that, as you said, in that sort of non-clinical setting is really important and that's what we know you know residential centers to be like around the world um and uh wanda Narita, which will be the first one opening here in australia shortly as well um that's what we're hoping to that's what we're hoping to have over there it sounds like an amazing resource if someone's listening and they are concerned for themselves or a loved one what will happen if they pick up the phone and call your helpline which will of course include in the show notes what will happen if they call that number how long can they continue calling that number and getting support? Is that a long-term solution? What are the other immediate tools available that the foundation offers? What's the cost associated with that? And yeah, if you can just speak to that, please. Sure. So we do have an array of services that are available, um, including the federally kind of the federally funded national helpline one eight hundred eighty hope that we've just talked about. The helpline is a great place for individuals with um, initial questions or just wanting to get more information about eating disorders to go to. Our helpline is staffed by counsellors who will be able to listen to your concerns or worries and also be able to help you identify appropriate sources for help that you can go to in sort of the local area that you might be in as well. In terms of calling the helpline repeatedly, I think that, you know, we certainly do offer that support for people who are needing a little bit of counselling or a little bit of support at any given point in time. But, you know, the reality is the helpline doesn't trump the importance or doesn't sort of in any way, you know, just highlights the importance of people being able to access appropriate treatment as well. So we're not sort of able to provide treatment on the helpline, but certainly um, we can provide a listening ear as well as direction about where a person can go to in order to get the help that they need. Other services that Butterfly Foundation offers are our treatment services, which currently includes a cognitive behaviour therapy-based group treatment program for young people between the ages of 18 to 25. We run this online and it is available to everyone across Australia. So you do need to have a referral from a GP in order to participate in the program. And we also have our recovery support services, which really focus on providing lived experience-led support groups to people recovering from their eating from an eating disorder, as well as their carers as well. 
We were talking earlier about carers and what resources might be available. We know that carers do suffer a lot of anxiety and worry and concern for their loved one. And it's really important for carers to be able to access help and support themselves, whether it be sort of to manage their own anxiety in relation to their loved one, or actually to learn skills about how best to communicate and be helpful to their loved one as well. And so resources for carers and carer support groups are available on the Butterfly Foundation website. And I'd be remiss not to mention some of the work that's being done by other incredible organisations like the Eating Disorders Families Australia, who also offer recovery and support programs for carers and siblings of people with eating disorders, as well as a free eating disorder support program that's been launched by the Inside Out Institute. So there's a lot of really great resources out in the community that are available to people and information about that should be available on our website as well. Brilliant. And if you're a clinician, if you're a mental health professional and you want to get some more professional development in the world of eating disorders, are there any resources that the Butterfly Foundation has or anyone else that our listeners can reach out to? Absolutely. So there are great resources on the NEDC, which is the National Eating Disorders um, Collaboration website available to clinicians. And there, you know, this is again a federally funded organization and project. And there's a lot of resources available for GPs. There's GP training information about which is available on their website. There's also in New South Wales, the Inside Out Institute, who provide a lot of training for health professionals in New South Wales. And also a great place to start um, asking some of these questions about the support as well as supervision opportunities is through ANZ, which is the Australia New Zealand Academy for Eating Disorders. On their website, they will have a lot of information about research as well as treatment and, and training options for professionals. Also, one of the great programs that ANZ have is they have a consultancy online program, which is sort of like supervision. So there are experts within the field who um, nominate to do sort of group supervision or case supervision on an online context. So people across Australia can really tap into this fantastic resource as part of their professional development. Amazing. Uh, Ranjani, I want to honour your time. Was there any last final thoughts that you had for any of our listeners? Have we covered everything? Yeah, I think so. I do think that it is very critical, uh, you know, the work that you're doing in raising awareness um, around eating disorders. If anyone is concerned about a loved one, even if you are not 100% sure, and if you think that there might be a problem, I do urge anyone to pick up the phone and ring the Butterfly Helpline, because again, that's the type of thing that a listener can talk through with one of our counsellors. So you might not be sure about whether there's a problem or not. I really just urge you to act early um, and have a conversation with one of our counselling staff who can help you to identify whether or not this is something to be worried about. Thank you so much for your time and for all the amazing work that all of the staff at the Butterfly Foundation do. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Okay, well, that's it for today. We hope that you've enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Ranjani Utpala. You can find us at talklink.com.au. See you soon.